Welcome, you're listening to The Pod Academy with Chris Barrow. In this podcast, I'll be talking about live music and what the word live actually means. So what is live music? Well, that's easy. Live music is when you can see and hear someone singing or playing an instrument. You experience sound caused as a direct result of the performer's actions, and the music is therefore live. Great, job done. That was probably the quickest documentary ever. But hang on a second. Before you go and put the kettle on, let's think about it again. What is live music? Is it really just being present at the same time as a performance? The definition of live is not as clear-cut as it might seem. For example, what about tracks that are recorded live? You're listening to a live performance through your headphones or speakers, but you can pause and resume the track whenever you want. And what about live performances broadcast on the radio? There is at least a 10-second delay on most transmissions. This is sometimes done on purpose so that swear words can be censored live, in a sense, by an alert sound engineer. But do performances on the radio, musical or otherwise, count as live, even if you hear the sounds ten seconds after the event? It's true to say that the definition of live music was much more simple before recording equipment was invented, and it's important to understand a little bit about the history of recording so that we can understand what live used to mean and what it has come to mean today. The first recorded words were thought to have been spoken by Thomas Edison when he invented the phonograph in 1877. The earliest phonograph recorded on tinfoil around a grooved cylinder, but had very poor sound quality, and the recordings degraded very quickly so that they could only be played a few times before they became unusable. Still, the results were so unexpected that the invention seemed to work, to most people, like magic. Edison even became known as the Wizard of Menlo Park because the machine's ability to capture and reproduce sound was so unusual. Here are the first words that Edison recorded with his phonograph. He is reciting the words to Mary Had a Little Lamb. The uh, first words I spoke in the original phonograph. A little piece of practical poetry. Mary had a little lamb, its fleet was white as snow, and everywhere that Mary went, the lamb was sure to go. It sounds clear enough, and the words are certainly discernible. The phonograph's ability to record sound was even used to advertise the product itself. I am the Edison phonograph, created by the great wizard of the new world to delight those who would have melody or be amused. I can sing you tender songs of love. I can give you merry tales and joyous laughter. I can transport you to the realms of music. I can cause you to join in the rhythmic dance. I can lull the babe to sweet repose or waken in the aged heart soft memories of youthful days. No matter what may be your mood, I am always ready to entertain you. When your day's work is done, I can bring the theater or the opera to your home. I can give you grand opera, comic opera, or vaudeville. I can give you sacred or popular music, band, orchestra, or instrumental music. I can render solos, duets, trios, quartets. I can aid in entertaining your guests. When your wife is worried after the cares of the day and the children are boisterous, I can rest the one and quiet the other. 
I never get tired, and you will never tire of me, for I always have something new to offer. I give pleasure to all, young and old. I will go wherever you want me, in the parlor, in the sick room, on the porch, in the camp, or to your summer home. If you sing or talk to me, I will retain your songs or words and repeat them to you at your pleasure. I can enable you to always hear the voices of your loved ones, even though they are far away. I talk in every language. I can help you to learn other languages. I am made with the highest degree of mechanical skill. My voice is the clearest, smoothest, and most natural of any talking machine. The name of my famous master is on my body and tells you that I am a genuine Edison phonograph. The more you become acquainted with me, the better you will like me. Ask the dealer. Ask the dealer indeed. But these are not the earliest recorded words in human history. Edward Leon Scott de Martinville patented his invention 20 years earlier, on March the 25th, 1857. It was called the phonautograph. Here's the complicated bit. The phonautograph transcribed sound waves as undulations or other deviations in a line traced on smoke-blackened paper or glass. The machine was intended solely as a laboratory instrument for the study of acoustics, and it could be used to visually study and measure the so-called amplitude envelopes and waveforms of speech and other sounds. It could also be used to determine the frequency of a given musical pitch by comparison with a simultaneously recorded reference frequency. However, for the phonautograph, direct physical playback was impossible at the time. The transcribed sound waves, called phonautograms, contained enough information about the sound that they could, in theory, be used to recreate it. Well, it's over 150 years later and technology has progressed to a stage advanced enough that we can listen to one of the earliest known recordings in history. In 2008, several of Scott's recordings were optically scanned and, using a computer to process the scans, digital audio files were created. In a moment, we'll listen to a phonautogram of a very early recording of Eau Claire de la Lune. But first, here is a modern recording just to jog the memory. And now, here is Scott's phonautogram. It's worth noting that Edison takes all the credit for inventing recording as his machines were designed for playback. He is very much responsible for popularising the medium. After Edison's phonograph, there were many new developments in recording technology. In the 1880s, a redesigned model using wax-coated cardboard cylinders was produced by Alexander Graham Bell, Chichester Bell and Charles Tainter. Further inventions, such as the gramophone, vinyl, tape, CD and digital MP3s, have helped to make music incredibly accessible, and records can now be easily distributed to a mass market. Not long after sound recording became possible, so did the ability to edit the tracks recorded using technology. As competition grew in the record industry, there was a desire and almost a necessity to ensure that your record was a perfect performance. 
Soon everybody could edit their recordings after the live take, splicing together tracks to create a performance of a piece which never actually happened. This cast doubt over how authentic recorded performances were, and in a literal sense the authenticity of performances also became much more difficult to verify. There is, of course, the famous case of Joyce Hatto. Joyce Hatto was a British pianist and piano teacher. She became famous late in life when unauthorised copies of commercial recordings made by other pianists were released under her name, earning her critical acclaim. The fraud only came to light a few months after she died. In Joyce Hatto's final years, more than a hundred recordings were falsely attributed to her. Her so-called catalogue of CD recordings included the complete sonatas of Beethoven, Mozart and Prokofiev, concertos by Rachmaninoff, Tchaikovsky, Brahms and Mendelssohn, and most of Chopin's compositions, along with rarer works such as the complete Godovsky Chopin studies. I mean, I suppose if you're going to do it, then at least she did it properly. The fake recordings received critical acclaim and were released by the English label Concert Artist Recordings, which was run by Joyce Hatto's husband, William Barrington Coop. He was a record producer. Coop initially denied any wrongdoing, but subsequently admitted that he had committed fraud. He claims that his wife Joyce was unaware of the deception and that she would hear the final recordings, believing that they were all her own work. He also said that he acted out of love and made almost no money from the recordings. And if critics couldn't tell that Hatto's recordings were not recorded by her, what chance do we have? Only now, with modern technology, do we know that the performances were not hers. It's crucial for us to understand the history of recorded music, as the technology to edit and alter sound recordings has impacted our modern-day view of what we think live music is. However, this idea of taking someone else's recording and using it as your own is entirely acceptable nowadays, of course. Here is a clip of the song Fool's Gold by the Stone Roses... Here is Wretch 32's Sublime Reworking, featuring example. Retro boy, you know we make examples. Your history's bruised. This is a future cut. Yeah, I got a good heart. I was born on beat, that's a good start. Why? The case of Joyce Hatto not only raises questions about the authenticity of recordings, but also the nature of the record as a medium. So thanks a lot, Edison, you ruined everything. Back to the question, what is live music? Perhaps live music is just music that we believe is live, that has a level of authenticity and credibility to us as an individual. Most people would make a distinction between recorded music and live music. But as I said earlier, what about those tracks that are recorded live? What does that mean and what does live mean? To answer this question, let's look at the traditional definitions of live music, which divides performances into four categories. The most live music is a performance given when you are in temporal and spatial co-presence of the performer, which means you are there at the time of the performance and you're listening to it. The second degree of liveness is when you only have temporal co-presence. So, for example, you're listening to a live broadcast on the radio, but you can't see the events taking place. This assumes that there is no delay on the radio broadcast, as I mentioned earlier. Next comes simply spatial co-presence. The unpopular practice of lip-syncing falls under this umbrella. You can see a performance, but there is no live music. You are listening to a recording. Finally comes recorded music. You aren't present at the performance and the music isn't live. For example, listening to a record playing at home. 
However, I don't think that these degrees of liveness provide an adequate definition of what live music means to us. Some would argue that the use of technology in performances makes them not live. Lip-syncing, for example, our third degree of liveness. Pressing play on a recording and then miming along while the music comes out of the speakers is one of the most cited examples of inauthentic fake performances, because crucially the music is pre-recorded, completely unacceptable. But how many people would say that using a microphone in a performance makes it not live? I'll explain what I mean. If you went to the Wembley Arena, for example, to see a concert, you would be rather shocked if the lead singer of your favourite band ran out on stage without a microphone and started trying to sing. It would just be rubbish. But a microphone is technology designed to create the desired effect in a performance, so that everybody can hear the words and the vocal line. The same is true for electric guitar players who require an amplifier to be heard in a stadium. In addition, guitar players often heavily distort their sound to create an effect which cannot be achieved without technology. was, of course, Jimi Hendrix with his performance of the Star Spangled Banner in 1969. Similarly, isn't a violin or a piano just another piece of technology which is necessary to make a performance happen, but it's just called an instrument? If your performance needs you to mime along to a pre-recorded backing so that you don't sound out of breath when you're performing your dance routine a la Spice Girls, is that so wrong? I think people rebel against miming because they feel like the artist is trying to deceive them. But if you believe that someone is singing live but they're miming, is that okay? Surely their performance is so good that they have managed to convince you. Isn't the art of performance to convince the audience of the performance's authenticity? Here is another example where the degrees of liveness are incredibly blurred. This should throw a spanner in the works. It's a recording of a live performance of the Guns N' Roses song Civil War from Paris in 1992. In the clip, we will hear live guitar playing at the same time as a pre-recorded voice sounding over the speakers, saying what we've got here is failure to communicate, all of which has been recorded and is now currently being transmitted on radio as part of a pre-recorded documentary. What we've got here is Let's look at recorded music and try and make a distinction between a performance that has been recorded live and an album track which has been carefully considered and heavily edited. So let's go back to the beginning of the programme with the Bee Gees. The track Staying Alive is a very interesting recording. You would never guess, but firstly, the drum track is literally a tape loop. The producer, Carl Richardson, copied a choice few seconds of drumming from Night Fever. Cut out the piece of tape, glued the ends together and fed it back into the recorder to create a new drum track. This was done solely to work around the drummer Dennis Bryan's absence for a few days, but the effect was a strikingly mechanical beat. 
As boring as this would later become in dance songs, it was new in 1977. The rhythm was so mechanical that staying alive was even used in a study to train medical professionals to provide the correct number of chest compressions per minute while performing CPR. The song has close to 104 beats per minute, and 100 to 120 chest compressions per minute are recommended by the British Heart Foundation and endorsed by the Resuscitation Council in the UK. Believe it or not, a study on medical professionals found that the quality of CPR is generally better when thinking about staying alive. But as you probably accept, this track was never performed live exactly the way that we hear it on the record. For the recording, musicians would perform several takes and pick the best one, or even splice two together. But think about this. Every time you press play on your MP3 player or vinyl disc or CD, is that a performance? Is the CD player playing the record? The speakers or headphones are allowing you to experience it. Could you even say that it's a live performance because no two plays will be identical? The CD could skip, the speakers might be turned up or down, or changed entirely to a different type of speaker. There could be noise in the background, you might even be on the train. You can customise the settings and create your own performance environment. Are you playing the record? Listening to a record is very different with headphones as opposed to on speakers. And if I play a much quieter version of Staying Alive, there is no doubt that it will have a different effect on you as the listener. You are probably just thinking, turn it up though. Let's look at another famous recording, Bob Dylan's All Along the Watchtower. Bob Dylan selected a number of takes and mixed them together to create the final track on the John Wesley Harding Sessions album. The final version of All Along the Watchtower resulted from two different takes during the second of three John Wesley Harding sessions. The session opened with five takes of the song, the third and fifth of which were spliced together to create the album track. You would never know from listening to it. When our friend Jimi Hendrix recorded his cover version of All Along the Watchtower, he took the editing process one step further, using the mixing desk as an instrument in itself. If you have stereo, you will hear the effect that he achieved. when Hendrix performs the song in a live way. It feels different. One is less careful than the other, but one is more live than the other. What about radio? Is radio really live? And what about this documentary? This documentary is pre-recorded. I don't think that we're under any illusions. It is generally accepted that documentaries are not live. However, this documentary is recorded in such a way that it sounds like it is all happening in one go. 
It gives the impression of continuity, but in actual fact there have been over 200 edits to the audio alone. It's like paper mache, an audio item made up from recorded live elements. I could have edited the documentary in a less professional way, so that it would sound like there were mistakes all over the place. 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 There might be more pauses, or unwanted coughs. With documentary making, often a sentence is recorded a few times and the best one is selected for the job. With documentary making, often a sentence is recorded a few times and the b- with documentary making, often a sentence is recorded a few times and the best one is selected for the job. Third time lucky. But my aim is to deceive the listener, you, to make sure that you think that this is happening live. The very fact that I'm telling you this is breaking the fourth wall. It's like seeing behind the curtain. Except that I included that whole bit on purpose, so perhaps it was professionally edited all along. Maybe the logic that deception is success transfers to live music performances as well. Perhaps live music is just music which is authentic enough to deceive us into thinking that it is live. But somehow that's not good enough. We still feel like we're being cheated. Let's look at music that cannot be performed live in a concert environment. Electronic music. This type of music can never have a traditional live performance because it was not written to be performed by anyone. It is meant to be played on a computer, through speakers, but are the speakers in this case the performer? And every time you press play, does it become a live performance? For me, it all depends very much on your own personal definition of live music. As I see it, a take or recording is an artefact of a performance that once was. It is a record, literally, of the events that took place on a certain day at a certain time. This is sometimes called a trace. However, a recording or trace that has been edited even slightly is no longer a direct record of what happened on that day. The Bee Gees song, for example, has been heavily edited to create a kind of collage of sound. So for me, the exact point where you edit a recording is the point where a recording ceases to be a record of a live performance. Instead, it becomes a new artwork. Like a classical composer, and I use the word classical in the loosest sense, it is wholly wrong to group all music before 1950 under this umbrella term, the sound engineer removes him or herself from the temporal, making changes to the architecture of the final work as a whole. I would argue that by editing performances you are creating a new form of art. As for what makes a performance live... That depends on what you yourself want live to mean. It has to be authentic and it can't be deceptive. It has to capture something true. What is live music? There is no one answer. All I want you to do is think about it. So next time someone asks you what is a live performance, take a few moments before answering. Thank you for listening.
This documentary was produced and presented by Chris Barrow. For more information about this or any of the other documentaries, please visit www.chrisbarrow.com. That's B-E-R-R-O-W. Head to facebook.com slash chrisbarrow or follow DJ Chris Barrow on Twitter.